Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 17 of Everything Aviation Podcast. Today's guest is an absolutely fabulous guest that I have for you. This guest is the second woman ever to fly the tornado operationally for the RAF. Done three tours of Iraq and massing 50 missions and one surface-to-air missile engagement. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the best-selling author of An Officer Not a Gentleman, Mandy Hickson. Mandy, how are we? I am very good, thanks, Mikey. How are you? Yeah, not bad at all now. Um, it, it's amazing to have you on here, so thank you for agreeing to come and chat to me. My pleasure, my pleasure. I always, I always love to do anything about aviation as well, and I think it's fantastic when people are trying to come up with new initiatives and, you know, spreading the word about aviation, especially in this tough time. Of course, I think we definitely need to get the the, the name pushed out there for for aviation and stuff. Um, so that brings me on to my, to my my first question, Manny, and that is, where did your interest in aviation come from? So I st- first started flying um, when I was fourteen. So I joined the Air Training Corps. Bizarrely because my mum was reading an article in the local paper and she pointed out that they were taking girls on and and she said you go to an all-girls school and it might be your only opportunity to meet some boys so under that premise I joined because a I like canoeing and b I like the fact that I might be able to meet some boys um as a as a young 14 year old girl and I flew, and it was while I was there I flew and from that that really started to foster that that passion and that it gave me that purpose I think that we all need in life you need that spark don't you to light to sort of say yeah, yeah what I want to do and I think it is a feeling of uh, feeling part of something and the one thing I felt about I remember when I left school and all of a sudden there was just like empty void and it was like oh that that's it then I, I, I don't feel part of anything and I think that the uh, yeah. I'm a CI myself for 172 squadron in Hayward Heath and um, you can see some of the kids there they, they absolutely love it and have that fe- being feeling of part of something that, that they take yeah. pride in I think we all we all like to be part of something, whether on whatever level that is, be it part of a tennis club, for example, you know. And I think that's something that when people leave an organization or a job or a career, I certainly had that feeling when I left the Air Force, is that you you suddenly feel that you're lacking maybe that direction and that purpose and that sense of you know, inclusivity of being part of an organization that you know are there for you. And I think that is really difficult. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. Uh, and because it, it's just like an umbrella, isn't it? On, over the top, you're keeping you safe and dry and everything. Um, and like you said, yeah. you go in, you make friends, you meet different people. Um, and it's great for the social side of it as well, if, if anything else. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So, man, you then went on from, from the Air Training Corps, that kind of, you got bitten by the bug. Um, and as I say to everyone in aviation, once you're bitten by it, that's it, you're, you're in. And when you went to university, you, you joined the University Air Squadron. Was that kind of your first mindset into maybe looking at the RAF or were you always looking at the RAF yeah. the air training car? Well I've, I've got mixed thoughts on this one so I love the air training corps in regards to I love the flying of it um, but there were a couple of characters on there that didn't make my life that easy you know sort of the classic I mean they were only young 16 17 year olds but they just wanted to make themselves feel special you know and, mm. and put you down as a consequence and I kept on thinking God, I don't like this part of the Air Force. I don't like this belittling others to make yourself look better. And I, in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, I'm a bit worried that if that's what the Air Force is about, then that's not me. So in the back of my mind, I did have a backup, which was going to be a police officer. Um, and then when I got to university, I just got a flying scholarship that summer, which had gained me 30 hours of free flying at the RAF's expense, which was fab. I paid with my money from my paper rounds to pay for the 10 hours additionally to get my PPL. And once I got my PPL, I thought, right, I got to university. I thought, I've got to keep my PPL current. 
well, I'm a student, I haven't got any money to do that. So I'll join the University Air Squadron because A, I want to fly. B, I, this is in the back of my mind, I do quite fancy a, a career in the Air Force, but I'm still set on the police and, you know, running parallel. Um, and also it was going to, one thing I hadn't grasped is the UAS was very different from Air Training Corps because the Air Training Corps is looking at all branches, you know, and everything, as is University Air Squadron, but I think you're very much looking at the officer cadre because they're, they're yeah. trying to encourage graduates to join as officers. Um, and so you stay in an officer's mess when you go to different camps, you know, and when you go to fly, you know, you stay in the officer's mess. And we couldn't believe it, a bunch of students turning up to this officer's mess, we're going, cheap booze, really cheap food. Oh my God, being being waited on hand and form. We're going from the student squalors to stay in these officers' messes, you know, and it was just really interesting. And of course they sell you the best side of the Air Force, plus all this flying, plus adventure training. And it was almost like, oh my God, that is the Air Force I want to be part of. And so it was the UAS that really was the big turning point for me to say, this is the career I want in the in the RAF. That's amazing. And even, even during your time to, to the UAS, um, they put you into an aerobatic competition, which you went and wiped the floor with everybody else in. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, I, I don't, I feel a bit, no, I'm a bit more humble than that, to be honest. No, I was quite lucky. I mean, so you have these annual competitions with different university air squadrons. So ours was against East Midlands, Oxford and Cambridge. They're in our four. And I was selected to represent the squadron in an aerobatics um, display. And someone else did navigation. Someone else did old practice force landings, landing on the spot, you know. And we use all of these things. And it's a really big social as well. So all the four different squadrons and universities come together. Oh, it's brilliant fun. And um, yes, yeah, so I was doing the aerobatics, which I loved. But the, what was really interesting for me was um, it was at that stage when I was in my final year at uni and I'd basically was running up to my finals and I remember this to Havilland Trophy was almost a week before my finals oh, wow. and you had to be you're doing it quite low and I can't quite remember what height you did down to I think it was about a thousand feet um, and so we had to start up at height 3,000 and we made our way down as it was proved that you were capable of flying at that height and so you did so many practices and so I had to go up every day to Cosford and I was at Birmingham Uni so you know it's a 45 minute travel up there and so I almost had to make this decision. Do I do the aerobatics competition, but I will not be working very hard towards my finals <laughs> or do I do the other way around? And at this stage, I'd just been given um, a scholarship, uh, sorry, sponsorship. So I was then a bursa, uh, but I was a bursa in air traffic control at the time. And I just remember thinking, actually, you know what? I've got a job sorted. So I'm definitely going into the Air Force at this point. I, I really want to persuade the Air Force that I can be a pilot. Mm. Um, and so actually having that little string under my bow, perhaps potentially winning an aerobatics competition was probably going to be more important than me, say, getting a first, a 2-1 or a 2-2, you know. So I made that, that distinct call. Amazing. And it obviously worked out for you. But I think what, what I find really bizarre about this moment is that when you were doing the aerobatic competition, I don't think women were allowed to join as a pilot at that stage, were they? So, well, that was, yes, they just changed the rules then. So well, I did it my third year and they changed the rules in my second year. Um, and I remember it really clearly. So, um, yeah, uh, you weren't allowed to, women weren't allowed to be pilots on the front line of fast jets. So you could fly by that stage, um, multi-engine aircraft, but you couldn't fly fast jets. 
And that's what I had my heart set on. And I remember the boss walking into the bar and he, there were three girls there and he said, girls, it's your lucky day. The, fire, the Air Force has finally opened the doors to women on the front. And we were like, yes, it was so exciting. Yeah, we, we all applied. Amazing. <laughs> and then in fact, I even went through the selection with a really good friend of mine called Vanessa uh, Ness Haven, and who she, who's actually with BA actually. So as I say oh, her um, name, many of the people there, um, she was Ness Ovens for quite a while as well. But Ness and I went to selection, RAF selection together. And in fact, she passed all the aptitude tests and I didn't. Oh no. <laughs> well, you, yeah, like a groundbreaking thing because I think it, it, mainly because of you, they, they looked into the tests a bit more and realized that they weren't geared for women. Yeah, so in fact, it was it was it was really interesting. So um, when Ness and I went through all the tests, um, I I had passed already for a, a scholarship, uh, but you had to uh, had to get it up to the next level, I think, to to join as a pilot. I passed really high um, scores for navigator, um, but I didn't pass at the required level for pilot. And yet I'd been flying on the squadron, and I proved myself, and I was you know a pretty capable pilot by now. And um, when I came back, I was I found out that. I sort of got my head around and thought, right, OK, you're going to be a nav man's, you know, at least you're airborne still, at least you've got that. And then we got this letter and our boss gave it to me. I can remember really clearly sitting in his office. It was a really monumental point. I opened this letter and it said you've been offered an, um, a bursary for air traffic control. And I thought, oh, my God, I got my head around nav, but I didn't want to be an air traffic. I wanted to be in the air. And I thought, I don't know what to do. And he said, man, this maybe gives us fuel, though, for the case of, maybe these aptitude tests because you failed them you know actually aren't designed for women because at the stage only just opened the doors to women and they couldn't believe how many women were failing the tests yeah and so in the end with a lot of work from him he escalated up through the ranks and he basically got you know air vice marshals involved and i wrote lots and lots of letters and i did join the air force though as an air traffic controller um, but I continued to make my case with this double pronged attack from him and myself. And it was really interesting because it was Ness that was um, doing her degree at Coventry and she used her dissertation to look at air crew selection. Oh, wow. And she went back to Cranwell and they said, yeah, we have this test case going through the system at the moment, which was me. And they said, basically, we took her on as a test case because when you look at um the distribution curve for men it was a classic bell curve but for women it was the majority failed the test but the, when they did pass them they passed it to an incredibly high standard mm -hmm. and they said that we don't understand why we're getting this really different distribution curve and this is when they said well maybe there's unconscious bias within the test maybe we need to look at our testing because they've never had it wasn't that they were you know being blind to this it was just the fact that they'd never had women on board so yeah no one had ever gone through the system. And so, yeah, they, they did. And they were really, really proactive. They looked at it. They got psychologists involved. And I always get asked this question. And what did they actually change? And the answer is they did change the test. But I don't know what changed. But we do see a more equal footing of men and women that passed now. Oh, wow. Because um, I know you were in officer training before you found out um, that you, you were going to be extremed as a pilot. Uh, was there any time like during that training where you were thinking... There, there might be a possibility where they're not going to stream me as a pilot and I might actually be air traffic control. Was there a point where you were thinking I might not continue on with the training at all? I don't know. No, I, I honestly think I must have been very, very either naive or a bit stupid. Um, but I had absolute, and, and it, look, it sounds ridiculous saying this because I'm almost embarrassed to say this now, but I look back and I think, no, I honestly, when people said to me, oh, and what branch are you? I'd say, well, I'm air traffic, but I am going to become a pilot. I'm just waiting to hear 
I'm just waiting. Like, I've taken on this entire Royal Air Force and I'm just waiting to hear that they've changed their minds. You know, and I think, my God, I wouldn't recommend anyone doing that now, you know, because the chances are they probably wouldn't. And so they've got so many people that are, you know, um, applying to join. Why wouldn't you just take the best of the best? And it was just sort of like, oh, my God, I just... So, no, I, I was just waiting, just blindly waiting. I love that, though. That does, It's like they, I heard a thing recently, and I quite like it, and it's uh, confidence is, is like a muscle. You either use it or you lose it. And I love that about you. You were confident yeah. the whole time. Like, I, I'm going to be flying one of them planes. That, that's going to be me. I, <laughs> I think it's mad. Honestly, I think it's mad looking back. But, I, yeah, I always love that one, that um, confidence is like a muscle. You've got to use it. And I think when I left the Air Force, actually, I set up um, a company called Inspiring Women for Work, and that was one of the strap lines was about confidence being a muscle. Um, and actually, if you've been out of the workforce for some time, and we're going to see that as a big problem now, I think, coming in after COVID, um, is that people will have lost their confidence massively yeah. because we just haven't been doing it. So it's going to be the equivalent of people coming back after maternity leave, having had that sort of enforced nine months, a year off and not using their brains in the same way. And then coming back and going, I don't think I can do it. You know, I don't. And so there's going to be a lot of self-doubt going on, I think. I was chatting to a mate of mine actually recently and uh, their cabin crew at BA and they were saying that we were talking about skill fade because there's, there's safety yeah. checks and stuff like that, that can fade out. But we were also thinking small talk and problem solving is also a skill that I think is, is going to fade. And it's, it's one of my kind of worries when we get back on board that it's going to be one of them. If someone's going to ask me a question, I'm, going to, oh, I'm, not, I'm not quite but, sure. Whereas yeah. 12 months ago, I'd have been able to nail it on the head. I think it's I think that's a really, really good point. So when you look at all the CRM aspects, you know, that we do all the training in our CRM within aviation. And I think so much of that is around that communication skills and how do we work well together? And you, you're in the pattern, aren't you? You know, whether you're front end, back end, wherever you are on the ground, it doesn't matter what role you're in. You're used to how things go, how we respond and then actually going, oh, my gosh, I need to remember how how I how I speak. to people. Yeah. <laughs> not just not been up to much. No. Yeah. <laughs> what you do during lockdown i watch a bit of netflix and play fifa end the conversation <laughs> yeah exactly oh what netflix have you seen <laughs> that's about it isn't it oh i saw a really good one the other day it's <laughs> <laughs> proper life choices right there <laughs> yeah exactly classics so mandy how did you feel when they came to you and said you were going to be streamed as a pilot Oh my God, I was blown away. I remember opening this letter and um, it was just in the classic RAF brown envelopes with a stamp, you know, not even a stamp, it has the, the official sort of like whatever it is, went through the franking machine. And I just remember I was going off to do a PT session and you, you know, you're all in your kit and I just thought, oh, a letter. And I grabbed it. It was like, oh my God, I've bloody done it. And it just said, I did flying off so well, the RAF would like to offer you a brunch to pilot. It was like, I couldn't believe it honestly I was like on cloud nine and it happened actually quite early in the officer training I think I was about a month and a half maybe two months in so it wasn't sort of like I had the whole time of waiting and so I mean literally I sort of ran to this like personal trial not personal training but this PT session and I was like oh my god I've become a part I've got pilot and they're like I never thought you would I always thought it was just bullshit you know <laughs> so um, it was quite funny brilliant and then so you, you've gone through that you've passed your officer training um and then you had quite a special pass out parade because i think your your granddad was a guest of honor oh, oh it was so lovely so my grandpa was a second world war pilot in the air force and so yeah i mean when you asked me at the start how i got into it i mean one of the things was that we we used to always visit every holiday and i he was a very very 
proud, quite personal man. And But every now and then he would drip feed these stories. And he told me this incredible story about him flying in South Africa and they were flying um, either Harvard's or Oxford. I can't remember which, what type it was. And he decided, because he was a bit of a rogue, you know, just to roll it inverted and see how it flew. Well, the answer was not very well because basically the, there was no like inverted oil system or anything like that. So all the oil just fell out of the aircraft and it, the engine stopped and he was like over the African plains. And he said, I had to land it. And I, there were all these massive anthills around. And we're talking like, they're sort of like, two-story buildings these anthills so he lands it and this careering down then he was like mayday 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 I've had a small engine problem uh, this is my location they sent someone out and the only way they could get to them was in another airplane and he said we they brought this airplane down and again it took the same landing as he had done careering around these anthills bloke gets out opens the cowling and went sir have you been flying inverted? My dad, grandpa was like, absolutely not. No, uh, I have no idea. Just obviously, he said, well, it's interesting that all the oil's on the on the top of the cowling. And so basically filled it up with oil. Oh, it seems to be working again. Miracle. Turned it round, took off. And I had to do this on the way off again. Oh, my God. So I grew up with these stories. So I could not believe the timing was unbelievable. His 90th birthday was on my Wings Parade, 6th of April, 1995. Um, oh my God, it was wonderful. And I said this to my supervisors, you know, to the guys, and I said, oh, it's my grandpa's 90th birthday. And said, right, well, we need to get him as the guest of honour. Oh, I've got a beautiful photo. Yeah. And it was just, it was so lovely having him and my granny there as well. And I think he'd had two daughters and they both had two daughters. And I think he looked at this harem of women in his life and thought, well, no one will ever be following in my footsteps. So what a lovely moment for him to see that. That's amazing. And it's so cool as well that you, you received your, your commission off, off of him, basically. That's really, yeah. really cool. So how did that then, how did you find pilot training? Um, coming off of that yeah it's I mean it's interesting really because I think when you're there it's just exciting you know you're you've well on my intake of officer training I think we had about 40 pilots because it's always the way there's got different um, intakes that they take throughout the year and I think there's one around um, August and there's one in October then there's one in sort of January and one in February so there used to be four intakes and this October one was full of University Air Squadron people who had finished in the summer, wanted to have a big summer holiday off, um, and then wanted to join in the October. So it was just full of us all. And so it was almost like I felt so sorry for all the ex-airmen that were there that would all like a lot more sensible. We've been through this. We don't need a whole bunch of these ignorant young puppies of these UAS students going, yeah, we know it all. We've been at University Air Squadron. Of course, you know nothing. Um, so actually there were about 40 pilots, which is really high, but that was always the case of that August intake. And um, so got to know those guys really well. And then each of the stages of flying training, so elementary flight, after, after officer training, we ended up holding for quite a long time in different roles. But I ended up holding at Boston Heath, which was where elementary flying training took place. So got to know all the staff, um, got to see all the courses in front. I got to fly loads as well, which was great because at the time they decided that anyone from University Air School that had a certain amount of flying hours wouldn't do elementary flying training. They would just put us straight onto Tucano's. Oh, wow. Which was, we wouldn't have then flown. If you think, you know, we haven't flown the whole summer, then we haven't flown for the whole year of office training. And now we've held for another six months. We won't have flown for two years and then we're going to get straight into a Tucano. And so then they went, oh, actually, we're going to send you all on a really short course. So rather than doing 60 hours, I think we did 
40 or something like that. Um, but that's after I'd held for a year by the time um, I ended up doing that. But each of the flying training courses is brilliant because you're with your gang, you're with your like brothers in arms, um, really close knit groups. I think we went from like 20 on the first elementary flying training course. Basic was then 12 and then down to eight. You know, you're getting smaller on each course as you go yeah. through. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it was challenging, but I loved it. I did love it. And, you know, and I, I just, I really enjoyed the whole camaraderie of it. That's brilliant. I, I read in your book, actually, um, which is quite, quite funny that uh, you used a hawk once or twice to, to pop home at the weekends. I know. I mean, it, there was a little bit more to it than that. We didn't just like hijack a hawk, but basically to increase your um, awareness of landing away and uh, your knowledge of, of basically how to take a hawk away. Um, no, there was a guy, I lived down in Winchester or my, my partner, um, now my husband, lived in Winchester and Anglesey is really not very close to that. So it's sort of about a six hour journey. And after a really intense flying training week, getting in a car at five, six o'clock and getting in at midnight and then leaving at lunchtime on Sunday, you know, you've really got what, you know, a day and a half, it's, it was knackering. And so this guy lived near Oxford and um, you've got Benson there and Benson's only about 45 minutes from me here. And basically they said, well, look, why can't we do a sortie with Mandy on a Friday afternoon? And rather than landing it at Valley, we'll land it at Benson. And then on a Monday morning, we would get airborne from Benson and we would just do the flight that we would have been doing from Valley. Um, and so there's no cost to the taxpayer at all. You're landing it on RAF base. Um, so it's absolutely fine. So, yeah, so that's, um, you know, what we did. And I did that a couple of times, actually, which was a brilliant ruse. We, you know, we couldn't have worked out about it. I wasn't the only person that managed to do it. There were lots of other um, guys that, who were traveling to London or something for the weekend that did it as well. That's so cool. It's, it's amazing. Rather than just getting in the car, it's like, oh, I'll just get in my fast jet and just, just, just pop home. I love that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was pretty cool, actually. And then out of, all, out, out of the Grub, the Tucano and the Hawk that you flew during training, what would be your favourite? Oh, the Hawk. Oh, I yeah. love the Hawk. I mean, I, I was right in my comfort zone on the Tucano. Um, and the Tucano the felt like a really big step up, actually, from... Um, flying the piston aircraft because I felt I'd been doing that for quite some time what with flying scholarship university air squadron then elementary flying training all on the same sort of aeroplane be it bulldog firefly you know um, so very similar and I had a, quite a lot of hours by then really probably I don't know 220 230 hours so going to the Takane felt fantastic retractable undercarriage much faster double the speed um, it's now a military registered jet so you can go down to 250 feet at low level wow. not 500 feet so that was great but I was right in my comfort zone it was you know I wouldn't say easy of course it wasn't easy no flying training ever is but I was, you know, I was happy. Got yeah. to Hawks and it was like, oh, now you're doing a lot more. It was just, you know, everything was getting much more complex. You know, some of the missions you're going on, you know, you're thinking, bloody hell, this is going to blow my brain, you know. That's amazing. And then you you finished the flight training. How did you find out that you were going to go to the tornado? Oh, so you have this fantastic selection. <laughs> um, it's called Creaming and Streaming. And the instructors come up with a different, like, plot 
you know, a different theme for every set of students, be it inflatable paddling pools full of balls and you've got to jump in and find the balls or ours was a massive spinning wheel. So you've got this huge spinning wheel and it had pictures of all the different aircraft types and I've got some photos of it and it's just like, oh my God, I think there was a massive paddling pool full of polystyrene balls as well, tiny little white ones. Oh my God, which went everywhere. And I'm not sure why we had to jump in that as well, but anyway, and you spun the wheel and if it landed on your aircraft type, you were sorted, but well, mine did not. So I got Jaguar, I got Harrier, I got Tornado F3. I'm like, is it gonna, and each time it lands on a different aircraft, you've got to neck a pint of beer. So I'm like three pints of beer necked in, you know, and I'm finally, I spin it and it lands on the Tornado G4 and I'm looking going, and there's like, yes. So then you get a different one. You get like the shot that you've got to do for that one. I mean, it's all very drinking gamesy, you know, but that was the culture and, and you know, it was fun. It was really fun. The main thing, once you had fun, that, that that's it. I'm surprised you remembered actually getting the GR4 with the amount you had to down there. Quite frankly, <laughs> yeah, it's a miracle. Actually, that was nothing though compared to the solo barrel when we, oh my God, we had this horrible selection of drinks that they made us drink. And, you know, and we had this one guy and he's very, very high ranking in the Air Force now. So I won't, you know, give him give away his name, but to all that know him, he was called Bane because he had a very deep voice and he sounded like the guy off Batman or whatever it was. <laughs> and he could drink like a machine. And we were all doing these like pint of Guinness. Then it was a shot of blue curacao and then a banana schnapps because the colours of the squadron were blue and yellow. And then another pint of bitter. And then right at the very end, they went, and here's your pint of milk. Well, all I can say is as soon as you drank the pint of milk, all of us were sick, you know, it was all horrible, but not Bane. Even he was like, yeah, I am eating his way through it. But no, Al was just unbelievable. That's brilliant. I was gonna say, I've interviewed quite a few people out of the RAF and there seems to be a team running here about the drinking um, games and stuff. Oh, yeah, I think it's changed a bit. I do think it's changed. Well, I think it's changed a lot actually. Mm. So, and this is what I always put the caveat on. I joined the Air Force in 1994. So a lot of the young people that are reading my book at the moment are saying, you know, um, thanks for sharing your story. Is it still like that? And absolutely not. You know, so yes, there is still the fun. Yes, there is the camaraderie. And of course, there will be the odd drinking session here and there. But it's not it, it's 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 completely changed in its mindset and how it is now. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've seen them the, the way that they're pushing it out on the telly and, and even on the websites and all now, and it looks like completely different from from what was in the book and what other people have said. Um, and how did you find then coming from when you you got selected for the uh, Tornado GR4? How how did you find then getting put onto the unit of it? Because you were the first female that the squadron ever had. Yeah, the first female pilot. Um, it was challenging actually. That was the bit when I doubted myself a little bit, if I'm honest, because. Up to that point, it's been camaraderie-tastic with all the same people now for four years of flying training. And then you get posted to your squadron and I don't know any of them. There was one guy I knew who was a couple of courses in front of me, um, who I always got on well with, but I didn't know anybody else and they didn't know me. And I am quite an extrovert character. I'm six foot tall, I'm a big personality and I always was. And you're suddenly turning up and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to change here because they don't really know me. They don't know what to make of me. So I need to either be a bit quieter for a bit. And it just took me a while just to find my feet. And, uh, you know, of course, it's, it was it was very male as well. This was sort of the 
you know, 1990s, late 1990s now, it was still very alpha male. Um, and again, that has changed as well. We've seen different personalities. I saw that change in my time in the Air Force as well. But I think when I first got there, it was sort of, you know, the eat glass, frontline flying. Um, I mean, things like screensavers were naked women. Again, not a massive problem. I mean, I never had a female toilet to wee in. It was a joint one, you know. Again, again, I know it sounds ridiculous. It wasn't a massive problem. I didn't didn't see this as being an issue. I just, I think I was quite thick-skinned about it. Um, But I was aware it felt different. It felt a very different atmosphere to being with my mates, you know, going through something. Wow, okay. It's, it's something you never think of. Um, it might be different nowadays, but um, when yeah. you're joining and stuff, you, you never really think of it as, as like that. But like you said, it was very yeah. male-dominated and orientated. And... It was, and and actually, it was it was a it was a case of sort of getting to know the wives as well. Because I know it sounds ridiculous, but I'm about to go away with their husbands, and yeah. I didn't want them to see me as a threat as well. Which, of course, I wasn't. I had a boyfriend at the time, and you know, but it was a balancing game. And I just, I just felt slightly uncomfortable, you know, at times. Um, it was great fun, but it, there was, it, it was different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you were to describe the tornado, how would you describe it? I think it is oh, ferocious. I think it's fantastic. As a jet, it looks like it is what it's meant to do you know uh looks like it says what it does on the tin type thing you know it's really big as well you know that was the one thing i couldn't quite believe is just i got used to the hawk and the, the tornado you, know, you need a step ladder to get up and you know into it um and it it's not like the hawk where it should kick the tires light the fires and off you go this took 45 minutes just to start up with all the checks all the procedures you know the, getting the nav kit loaded getting your route in there um but the nice thing was, is that whereas the Hawk had been training to challenge you, um, you know, it didn't have head-up display, GPS, nothing like that. So you were always paper map, stopwatch and compass, and your head is just like, now, suddenly you get into a tornado, it's got a head-up display, it's got a moving map, it's got, you've got a navigator in, in the back seat, um, and they are weapon systems operators as well, they are running the nav, they're basically your teammate. So they're not there. They're not there in an instructor capacity to challenge you. They're there to ensure you get a better performance as a team together. And so that was, again, just getting your head around that, that you're a crew to perform well. So it felt like you've arrived in an aircraft that's now assisting you to do your job, not seeing how well you're coping with it. Oh, well, I like that. That's a, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think a little bit like, say, you know, all the different systems, say, oh, like on Airbus or Boeing or whichever, you know, your aircraft type of choices, you know, it's been designed to be user friendly. And that's how it felt for the Tornado compared to what we've been flying on the Hawk. That's so, no, brilliant. it's an incredibly powerful jet as well. It's just brilliant. I've, n- I've never seen one up, well, I say up close, I've seen them in the museum. I've never seen one actually flying and stuff. They were retired before I, I, I moved over to the UK to, to, have a look at all that all things aviation and it's just seen i was like you said i was really surprised at the pure size of this aircraft yeah. um, even the hawk now when i see it like the c2 i think geez that's that's quite big compared to what i had in my head yeah yeah absolutely and i mean when you stand close to it and it's lighting its burners i mean the sheer force that is generated when it uh, you know you light the burners on this thing was just fantastic i mean you're thrust back i think you get about 2g of lateral acceleration you know oh, wow 
So it's brilliant. That's amazing. And then you got to do, before you got deployed and all, you got to go to Red Flag uh, over, over in the no. States. What was yeah. that like? Oh my God, Red Flag is brilliant. Um, I mean, it really is one of the best exercises that, put, that is put on in the world. Um, the philosophy is that you're sort of going to train harder than you're ever going to have to fight for real. So they're pushing you all the time. So you do really complex exercises out there, um, which can change. So we did a night red flag as well. So they were doing a lot of night missions, dropping live ammunition. Oh, They've wow. got a whole load of different de dummy, but with all the sort of surface to air missile emissions that you're getting from it so that you're getting all the radar emissions that are coming through onto your radar homing and warning receiver, the RHWR. So actually it feels like you're in a real war zone. Plus you have all the American pilots that are trying to shoot at you as well. Um, so I didn't have enough hours to participate in the first red flag that I was there, but I then did in, in future ones. Wow, that's so cool. And then did that stand good good steed to you when you when you got out to Iraq and all that? Yeah, it did, because actually, um, if you've never trained with the Americans, for example, then suddenly you're in a war zone and you're flying with them and you're using the same language, but at the same time there are loads of differences in the language. And so, you know, just different turns of phrase that we use, the different protocol, just understanding sort of how the Americans work is really, really important because, I mean, let's be honest, we're always going to be working together in a coalition these days. Mm. Um, and, you know, we were mounting enormous missions over in Iraq and, you know, and they were bringing aircraft from what, four different countries as well, from, you know, Bahrain, from Saudi, from Kuwait, and you would all be coming together on this one mission. So again, understanding how to work together was really, really important. And that's why things like, although it is costly to do it, that's why the training is absolutely essential because you don't want to just take someone that's just been flying around Scotland and then go, by the way, you're off to Iraq. And by the way, now you're on an 80 aircraft mission and you've never been exposed to that before. Wow. And I think as well, uh, it, it's probably a contributing factor, but then the aircraft performance in the, the heat rather than as well, like you said, in Scotland, where it's quite yeah. cool. Um, you're now going out to the desert where it, it's plus 40 and you're, um, try, the aircraft performance is going to be different. Absolutely. And of course, that wasn't something that, you know, I, I was thinking about, but the difference of operating hot and high is hugely, you know, uh, com not, not even comparable to a cold winter's day in Scotland. And so the performance of the jet does change massively. Um, and so, yeah, it was great to do that and fly over that. Um, and also the Arizona desert that you're flying in replicated the gulf that we were flying in at the time over Iraq. Yeah. Brilliant. And then, so, so staying with, with, with Iraq, your first mission when you got there, uh, that was that was a bombing run, wasn't it? I know. It was uh, It was really, I remember the guy um, who was leading the mission, he called us all in, he briefed us and he said, your eyes, Mandy, just went like saucers, you know, you look like a rabbit in the spotlight. And you sat there just going, because up to that point, everyone had just been doing reconnaissance and that was our primary role out there, reconnaissance. And you know, that's all anyone was doing. And so I sort of, they were like, oh yeah, you're, you're on today, Mandy. And I was like, okay, great. Yeah. You know, quite excited, a bit nervous. Oh, and it's a bombing mission. Oh my God. Right. Okay. Um, which sounds a little bit mad to be surprised by that, but we hadn't been doing many. That, that was the whole point. If we, if everyone had just been doing bombing missions the whole time, of course it wouldn't have been unusual, but it, it was unusual for that to be my first trip out there. Yeah. That's so cool. And was there a time during it where, you know, you're, you're, arm to the teeth you're sitting there you're cool you're in your fast jet with your nav over iraq is there a time you're sitting there thinking we bad 
Well, A, you're not cool because you're boiling hot. <laughs> so um, the really funny thing there is you've got all of the kit on and you've even got your thermals because you have to wear them for the, the flame retardant aspects of the fact you don't want to boil inside the, the flight suit if there's a fire of some sort. So you've got your thermals on. So, and on the ground, because of the cooling systems of the tornado at the time, all the cooling is diverted to the avionics to keep them cool. But no seems to be worrying about that soft pink person that's sitting there that was, they had, they did do an amendment, um, sorry, um, a modification to it after that. But at the time you'd be like sitting there absolutely, I mean, I think I weighed myself once, I've lost three pounds in weight just from sweating in thing. And if you then, once you got airborne, the aircon kicked in, it was like, oh, thank God, because you've been sitting in a greenhouse as well with the heat burning on top of you. It was like 48 degrees one day. Oh, oh my God. So um, I never, I, I don't know why. No, I mean, I interestingly, I, all that was ever going through my mind when I was flying was don't let your team down. Don't, don't mess up. Don't mess up be good you know um so no I, I was I'm, I was never really like oh I'm the dog's knob type person I was I've never been that sort of person that's, that's fair enough that's a, a mate of mine actually asked me to ask you as well they found out like you you're doing all these missions how do you wee in a tornado with difficulty is all I'm going to say yeah no it's, it's really it is really challenging so the guys have um, a small pee bag that they can wee into but a woman there was no system for them to do it at the time. So no, it was really, really challenging. Um, yeah, and I had a few incidents, you know, over the border, which were rather uncomfortable. One which led to a kidney infection because I held held a wee for about four and a half, five hours. Um, yeah, and yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Oh, I can imagine, that's horrible. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they they have come. They've tried. They've tried different things, and the trials are still ongoing. Um, the she we wasn't around at the time, but yeah, <laughs> that would have been helpful. Very handy. <laughs> yeah. Just just going back then to your your tornado training. You spent some time out. You you had quite a scary experience out in Canada, um, where oh. the the your nav was looking at maybe ejecting. Yeah, that was probably the closest call I've probably had actually well certainly on the ground and because it happens in a slower time you have more time to reflect on it as you as it's happening um we i mean it's a classic crm holes in the swiss cheese model you know if you've done your crm training any of the aviation world out there you know you'll hear about james reason swiss cheese model and it was like every literal hole had aligned i we were doing a combat we were running low on fuel we pushed the limits legally there was really huge thunderstorms going through and yeah, it was it, everything. And when I then came in to do my approach, we were aware that we really needed to land off this approach because actually we were pretty much on fuel minimums. I mean, out there, your, your nearest div is hundreds of miles away in like Halifax. And we were using the second runway at Goose as um, a secondary runway, you know, that we could use as well for a sort of div as well. And of course, there's massive thunderstorms around. So I'm in this on an approach. I'm coming down on a precision, a precision approach radar and air traffic control said, can you take a talk down from a uh, trainee? Which I should have said no, but I was in training myself. And I was like, yes, gung-ho. Of course, I can do anything. I am invincible. I'm coming down and they're sort of going five degrees left, 10 degrees right. And I'm thinking, God, this is not good. I'm either, either it's really bad weather or this is not a good talk down. And when I popped out of cloud at 200 feet, I was lined up with the apron, all the aircraft were in front of me. And I thought, oh my God, the runway was right out over to my right. So I hauled the aircraft over, took it and I landed smack on the center line. I thought, I did think you are the girl at that point, 
But the way that the runway was designed, it was the most ridiculous. Talk about a latent threat in a system. This really was classic. One of the sides was ridged and one of them was smooth. And it was a very, very wide runway. And they used to say, if it's if the uh, runway is contaminated with, you know, three mils of rain or whatever the rules are, land on the ridge side because it'll stop you from aquaplaning. But of course, in my haste, I'd forgotten this rule and I landed on the center line. And as I engaged my thrust reverse, my uh, the run, runway that was smooth, my wheel completely aquaplaned. And we spun through sort of 90 degrees and we're now heading sideways going down the runway at about 160 miles an hour. And it was really scary. Um, but the one thing that I would always say, and this is something that's great about aviation, isn't it, is that we have so many processes and you do so much in simulators and things like that, that my nav didn't go, oh, my God, this is awful. He went loss of directional control on the ground. And instantly that goes, that's a drill. That is a that is a in my cards in my flight reference cards. It's an emergency drill. Rather than going, oh, this is awful. You just go lots of direction control on the ground, and you just your brain clicks into doing the drill that you practice in the simulator, and dunk 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 do all the drills that you meant to do. And at which point, after we we were slowing a little, he went, "I'm not ejecting yet." And I, that's when I was like, I hadn't even thought about it. I hadn't entered my thought that I would be ejecting. Um, and then I thought, oh, my God, should I be ejecting? Should I be ejecting? I, shouldn't, I don't know. Should I be ejecting? And then I've got this dialogue. And then we came to a standstill and we were lined up with the, um, the, the departure lane for the runway, the exit. And I thought, oh, my God, thank God I'm here. And I powered up. And as I powered up, and this is my embarrassment because this really was me and showed how much capacity I was just at maximum overload. I powered up and we started going backwards. And I remember saying to them, oh, my God, we're going backwards. What on earth has happened? He went, your thrust reverse is engaged like you stupid cow <laughs> he didn't say that but he said mandy your thrust reverse is engaged i was like of course it is <laughs> i sort of clicked it out and then we powered on but i couldn't i couldn't process it i thought have i dropped my um hook and have i connected onto a you know it was ridiculous it was ridiculous but yeah i was i was at, at max capacity wow. um but we connected off and we were safe and we said i think we might need to put a safety report in for that one <laughs> no shit sherlock uh, so that's, I know that, that I, I fair, fair play to take my hat off to you for putting a safety report because I know uh, I've heard of quite a few people who who wouldn't because they'd be a bit too embarrassed to, to say it and I, I think it's quite important like if I mess up I'll be the first person to tell someone because I want someone to learn from my mistake and yet like you said you're still here to, to have a laugh about it with myself and there's a few mistakes I've made that I'm still here to have a laugh about so I think it, there's, there's a culture there that needs to be kind of abolished about yeah put a safety report in let, let other people learn from it yeah, absolutely. And and it's one thing that I do raise my hat off to aviation, actually, is how much the safety culture has changed over the last, well, since, what, 1990s, when I think CRM was brought in. And I think it has made a monumental difference. That and really looking at that just culture and giving people something to hang their hat on, you know, giving people a sort of statement of what is a just culture so that people know that actually if they make an honest mistake, it's better to talk about it because there will be no punitive action. And I think... You know, companies that have done really well with this and have the right culture, they embrace that just culture to the absolute nth degree and people know where they stand on it. And the problem is, is that, you know, in any of these organisations, especially across the aviation sphere, you will have different companies that someone will make a mistake, but the company go, oh, God, I really want to sort of like make a, an example of that. But as soon as they do that, it shuts down their reporting culture because, yeah. of course, you know, people say, but hold on a minute, it was an honest mistake. So why am I being penalised? Why am I being, you know, put through punitive action for it? And I think 
this is where you know the aviation industry has just got to be so careful because we've seen it in medicine as well where they've tried to to mirror what has happened in aviation and they've done really well with it to some degree and then something happens and they go sue them are we going yeah. to strike them off the medical you know register and people go what it was an honest mistake and they go yeah but someone has to pay the price and they go no and of course then it's so short-sighted because then of course all the reporting shuts down and you don't find out what's actually happening in the in the world of in your business and then you have nothing to base your data on and nothing to base all your risk-based decisions on yeah 100 um, yeah sorry i'm quite passionate about crm actually no no it's, um, no, it's, it's great yeah. to talk about i don't think it's, it's talked about enough and that's the problem yeah absolutely and i, I think you know i see some some companies do it really well really well uh, and others don't do it quite as well I completely agree with you. So staying on the CRM, let's talk about when you got engaged by a surface air missile, because it was, it was, there was, I'd say there was a lot of CRM in, in that instance, because you were leading the, the formation. Yeah, I was. So um, it was sort of coming up towards the very end of my tour and I was going to go home the next day. And, um, again, it's a really good example of sort of CRM because we talk about threat and error management. And one thing that we do is we brief about all the threats that are out there to the nth degree, you know, so when it happens, it's not an emergency. You're just going. But in the run up to that night, the arterial route sort of between Baghdad and Al-Basra had always been really busy. And we'd been highlighted by lots of missiles. We've been shot up by quite a lot of AAA, the anti-aircraft -air artillery. But once you got to the Saudi border, it was it was much quieter. Um, and so actually your complacency levels would start to, to build up. And that's one of the big threats that I don't think we probably briefed enough, actually. Um, yeah, and we were engaged by a surface-to-air missile. And so we, we carried out our counter maneuver to combat that. We had to put flares out. Um, the flares took the heat-seeking missile away from us and it, and it exploded about two miles away from the jet. Um, yeah, and it was it got very chaotic on the radios because there were a lot of aircraft airborne. And the way it works is that you have um, rules of engagement and they basically say that once the aggressive act is made towards any one of the coalition aircraft, then you can prosecute an attack on a target. Obviously, that has to come as a command, though, from the command and control cell who is sitting in the Persian Gulf. And so we put it through what had happened and we were told to stand by while a plan was formulated. And this is where you bring out all things like your dodar, your decision-making models, you know, asking your team, um, what would you do? We found out there's a tanker in Saudi Arabia so we could open up our options. Yeah, and I was leading and I was very, very junior still. Um, and yeah, my boss was in my formation. He was my number two. The senior exec was my number three. So a very, very senior team. And yet one thing that's great, I think, about the military is... People always assume it's really hierarchical and that, you know, if someone from command tells you to do something, you just do it. But one thing that they don't appreciate is that actually people are really challenged at a very junior part of their careers as well to lead missions, to push themselves, to be in, involved in projects or, you know, big entertainment events or whatever it is. You are pushed and you are given quite a lot of leeway there to make the decisions uh, and that magic word accountability for your decisions. And that was something that I, I really witnessed that night because my nav and myself had to work really, really closely together. I mean, he's just brilliant and he was much more experienced than myself. Um, you know, the teamwork is phenomenal. Leadership that I witnessed, my boss's leadership, not leaping in, taking control, trying to guide me to do stuff. He allows me to lead because that's what you do in the military. But again, when I talk to businesses, you know, and I say when you know the proverbial hits the fan 
if you're in a leadership role, do you leap in and just take control always? And they say, well, majority of the time, yeah, because you want a better outcome. So, but where's the learning? Mm-hmm. How do you ever get growth from those people that were leading initially if you're always just taking over? And it's like, hmm, that's a really good point. Yeah. But it's what they do, and then you get this growth from the bottom up, um, which is really, really powerful. Amazing. And when, how did you find out that there was a, a missile locked onto you? Does, does the tornado tell you, or was it? Well, normally, ordinarily you do. So you have a ra- radar homing and warning receiver called an RHWR uh, piece of kit and you get spikes from emissions that are when you're being looked at by different radars. Um, so, for example, say you had a, a surface to air missile on the ground, you get a spike to tell you that the tog, that the radar is looking at you initially. If they then launch a missile, then you will get a missile acquisition radar, which is a different spike. So different waves are coming through. And because uh, the system knows what all the different pieces of the wiggly amps are in the electronic warfare suite, you would know if it's something on the ground that's looking at you, if it's a missile in the air that's looking at you. This was sent in heat seeking mode. So actually, we did, although we had the missile looking at us from the ground, so we'd started to step away from it. Once the missile was bizarrely launched, it was sent in this heat seeking mode, very low chance it works, but if it does lock onto the heat, then it gets there a lot more, well, undetected because mm. you've not got that radar acquisition mode from the actual missile itself. And so it was my nav had his goggles down um, and he happened to be looking and saw this thing coming towards and it was him that shouted at me to break right. Wow. Um, was, it, yeah. was there any, was it all calm in the cockpit or was there any fear at all or was it, was it just training and instinct? Uh, Training and instinct, I would say, fear when you get down, when you land and then you go, bloody hell, that was close. And then you reflect on it and you think, gosh, that was as hairy as it's ever going to get. So, and I think all pilots would generally say that. The majority of pilots that I've ever spoken to that say when they're actually flying, when they're doing the job, they are doing the job because of training, because of instinct, because you know you've been this is what you've been trained to do this is why they invest all the time and effort and money to get to you to that point um yeah so but it's when you get land that you the adrenaline's then gone and you reflect on what potentially could have been yeah it's mad wow that's a no fair fair play to you because you you then have to try and tank off an american tanker that you've never been on before your adrenaline's probably going through the roof your capacity bucket is probably very full um yeah, it wasn't good. It, wasn't, it didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was a KC. We got to the tanker and um, ours had broken, uh, had some unserviceability issues. And so it had been replaced by an American tanker and I wasn't cleared. I'd never done it before. You know, normally you do it in daylight with an instructor pilot in a twin stick aircraft. So you've got, you know, a pilot teaching you. And of course, here I am in a war zone. It's the middle of the night. There's a sandstorm. I've just been shot at. I'm leading. I was like, oh, my God. And I just said to my boss, I'm not cleared. I've, I have, I've not cleared to tank on the KC-135. And he said, well, you know, it's going to be no harm to have a go. And I did try to have a go. And it's got a different system. A, je- a guy sits at the back and he flies a, um, a drogue onto you. And I just I just couldn't get in the right place. And I, it just wasn't working. And we were really low on fuel. And of course, once you put your probe out as well, you started, it, it stops um, because it's it. you're getting air in the system, in the fuel system, so to speak. It's not a technical, I'm not very good on the tech side, but basically it stops any transfer of fuel going. Okay. So 
you know, I, I had some wingtip fuel in. And of course, as I'm tanking, this no longer could transfer. And I would had to put my probe in, transfer the fuel out from the wingtips in. And then I'd had more fuel in the aircraft and we suddenly got this fuel light as well. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm running out of fuel as well. And it was, I sound like I'm a wild woman up there saying, oh, but I wasn't at all, you know, yeah. actually you, you're very controlled. Um, and I and I said to, to um, the, the guy in the back seat, this is not working. And I'll be honest, he did say press on because I'd later discovered he was quite emotionally involved because we were carrying this brand new enhanced paveway weapon and it had never been dropped in any war zone. Oh, wow. And he'd been part of the trials team and he was desperate to be one of the first people to drop this bomb in anger yeah. after, all the after all the trials he'd done on it um, to see how it worked really as well. And of course now I couldn't tank, so he was keen to carry on. Yeah. But again, in that reflection afterwards and in the debrief, you know, you hear him saying, Mandy made exactly the right call up there. She had an attempt. It didn't work. She was the one that said no. And he said, and, and it makes you realise that, you know, it's not good to make try and make good decisions when there's a bit of emotion involved. It's better to try and remove that emotion. Yeah, 100%. And let's fast forward a bit now to to your life outside the RAF, because you, you've, you've left the RAF, you've put pen to paper, you've written a fantastic book. Um, we've actually got a copy of it here, uh, An Officer and Not a Gentleman. Um, hey! Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 I have to say, it's a book that I really struggled to put down. Um, I ended up just carrying oh. it around the house in case I got like five minutes spare where I could just sit down and read it. Bless you. Um, how are you finding a life outside? Was it hard to adjust and, and, and what to what you're doing now as well? Yeah, so it was interesting, actually. So I left 10 years ago this month. Uh, in fact, I was just about to put out a blog myself, actually, because I've just been really reflecting over the last 10 years. And I've been talking a lot at the moment about choosing your flight path. And, you know, I think so often we end up on a certain track and we assume that that's the way we've got to go. And for a pilot, you've been in the Air Force, you sort of assume that when you leave, you'll probably go into the airlines and that's your skill. And that's what I did. I did all my commercial pilot's licenses. So I got my ATPL, which was bloody hard. I mean, mm. it's so hard. I mean, you know, I, I, I found it hard to do. And I had, you know, 16 years of experience of flying under my belt. And I had to do all 14 ground school exams because the tornado did not get classed as a twin engine aircraft because the engines were not far enough apart for asymmetric reasons. So they basically said, you've not got enough hours on a twin engine aircraft, so you're going to have to do the whole license. I was like, oh my God. So I had to do all 14 ground school exams. You know, and I just thought, God, young cadets that are coming in, I've raised my hat to you because it is tough. You know, it's tougher than my degree I did by a long shot. Um, and so, you know, I'm so pleased to hear that, you know, it is being made into a degree and there are, you know, all the different courses and things like that because it's so it should do um so i did that when i left and then i was at a dinner party and i was telling that story about being shot at in iraq and someone said oh my god that would be brilliant for um an event i've got going on we often get a speaker in and they close the event and it's to insurance ceos um at this brocket hall in hertfordshire a really nice stately home would you would you consider speaking and i thought yeah why not i mean i didn't even know that was a thing i'd never heard of a keynote speaker I've never heard of motivation quite frankly like not in that context and and so and, then, and they said oh we'll pay you and I thought oh my gosh you get paid for telling your own stories I thought oh, this is my dream job you know I can just talk the whole time and um so I went along and I had it all on cards and I did this speech and I was like and then we got shot at by a missile and there I was like it was terrible but the story was great but my performance and delivery was crap. And so 
it made me go, God, and the woman said to me, Mandy, when you told it at the dinner party, it was like, why don't you, it's your story. Why do you need cards? I went, because I don't want to miss anything out. And they went, but they won't know if you missed anything out. I thought, oh my God, it was like a revelation. And so never used cards again since, never have done in any speech I've ever delivered. And it ended up opening an entirely different world. From there, I ended up saying, and this goes to the confidence, fake it till you make it. People said to me, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a motivational speaker. And they said, oh, that's fantastic. How did you end up doing that? And I went, well, I was a pilot in the Air Force. And da, 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 da. I'd only done one 20 minutes, not even very well. And so I was there at ski shines going, yeah, that's what I do. And they were like, oh, I run, um, I'm a law firm in London. We are after speakers. Can you come and do us? I was like, absolutely. That was my next gig. Um, and so I'm at Blackfriars Bridge on this in wonderful law offices speaking to Nick Clegg's wife, you know, Miriam Gonzalez. And she had just set up this um, big um, charity called Inspiring the Future. And she said, Mandy, oh my God, will you be part of it? And so I was involved in the launch event and it was about getting women to go into schools as role models to encourage girls particularly to think about careers in other areas that they wouldn't have perhaps thought of. Um, and I know that we've been trying to do a lot on women in aviation, trying to get, you know, the mindset of really young kids, you know, STEM right into those early, early learning years. And so I got involved in that charity. Um, the speaking business started to go through the roof, which is great. And over the last 10 years, it's grown year on year. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit and the events industry died, as did mm. aviation. And I got quite sad really because I thought I've spent so much time and effort building my own business my own brand and everything and I hadn't released the book then and I thought and I'd been procrastinating over the book as well I'll be briefly frank um and um yeah because I'm not a natural you know I'm not an I'm not a writer um and so I've been working with my really great friend a guy called Rob Hodgetts who is a brilliant writer he was a BBC journalist Wow. Um, and sports journalist and he went to university with me and so we were working collaboratively on the book together and so you know basically I thought my god we've finally got time on my hands and so we tried over the last two years to get the book out to different publishers and we've been rejected um, really frustratingly because what was it plain books for a male readership who have no interest in a woman's story was one quote <laughs> honestly I could have oh so angry when I got that because I just thought what a, this is just a story about you know, it's not just about a women's lib story at all it's just about aviation it's about having yeah. a dream about pursuing a dream and I was so annoyed when I got that one I thought I'll self-publish it then which I did um and I put it out on Amazon and yeah it went to the number one bestseller for aviation books and it sat there for about four or five months I was like oh my god oh, this is so exciting and it's led to loads of different things as well and it's really got me back engaged in um, speaking to different groups as well. So I've done speaking to a lot of air cadets, a uh, lot of university air squadrons. I think I've spoken to nearly all of them now in the UK. Um, and actually makes you realise that we need inspiration. You can't be what you can't see. And we all need people that we can believe in that have done it. Yeah. And so I'm getting a lot of youngsters on Instagram contacting me saying, thank you so much for your book, Mandy. This is just what I needed at this moment um to to bring a little bit of, of inspiration and make me realize I can do what you did you know and I think yeah we, because there weren't any books there aren't many books actually by female military personnel actually mm. out there at all let alone female aviation yeah yeah no it's, it's like I said it's, a, it's an absolute fantastic book and I I really struggled to put it down so that there you go you can send that to the publishers and tell them that yes. <laughs> like he says <laughs> it must be true <laughs> 
it's true. It is true. If any of my listeners are, are looking to get a copy of this book, go head over to Amazon. It's called An Officer, Not a Gentleman. Mandy has done a really, really, really good job with it. So definitely head over and get a copy if you're interested in aviation and following dreams. Thank you. Well, it's an easy read, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> it's a very good read. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Mandy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. And thank you so much for, for agreeing and taking the time to, to talk to me and, and, and the listeners today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Mikey. Honestly, I'm sure we could talk all day. <laughs> I, 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 don't put it past me. <laughs> I tell you, we wouldn't have any listeners by the end of it. They'd be like, oh, for God's sake, will you two shut up with your waffling? <laughs> Mandy, thank you so much. My pleasure. All the Enjoy very best. Thanks for having me on.